0: Good morning, everybody. How you doing? You know, the words in that song, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave, the God I love, I think is an apt description of, uh, of uh, the struggle we all face as human beings. You know, even as those who have experienced the love and grace of God, there are times we seem to wander, we, we seem to, in some cases, intentionally turn from the God we say we love and, more importantly, from the God who loves us. And maybe that's not true for you. But it is true for me, and it was certainly true of God's people, the Israelites. And so with that in mind, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 1. If you need a Bible to use, you should find one down in one of the chairs around you. Uh, go to the middle of your Bible, to about the book of Matthew, the start of New Testament. Go left, three books, and you're there. Hopefully you were able to find it this week and uh, read ahead um, of today. If not, you'll have some... Chances in the next couple of weeks, because we we're going to continue on with this, because today we're starting just this new series called From Ruin to Restoration. It's a study of this ancient document that happens to be the second shortest book in the Old Testament and offers uh, an account of the Israelites who at a very specific point in history uh, were given by God the task of uh, restoring his temple. I mean, that was their mission, uh, the people embraced it, uh, at least initially, uh, but soon after Uh, They got started on the work. They allowed personal ambition and um, outside interests to quench their enthusiasm and their efforts, and as a result, they went into a period of spiritual decline as God's house remained in ruins, and Haggai happens to be the prophet that God used to deliver four specific messages uh, to his people, and this morning, we're going to look at um, the first message, but before we do, let's pray. Our Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be together today as your people. Um, And Lord, I pray that you would be with us in a special way. We might sense your presence here. Uh, We all need to know you're with us um, as broken, sinful, flawed men and women we often fail you, we fail each other. We fall so far short of, of who you've called us to be. And we desperately need a sense of your grace and your mercy. And so I pray that we would have that today, even as we sing and as we open your word to learn. Uh, may you pour out your spirit on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we have to really begin uh, this whole deal with uh, a historical background. So uh, stick with me on this, okay? Uh, In 586 BC, the Babylonian armies under a guy named Nebuchadnezzar swept through the land of Israel, uh, destroying the land, decimating the temple in Jerusalem and carrying the people off into captivity. And for 48 years, they lived in exile in Babylon. And in 538 BC, the emperor Cyrus the Great uh, allowed the Israelites to return home if they wanted to, to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And so led by the newly appointed governors Arubabel and Joshua the high priest, 50,000 Israelites returned to the land, which means that many of them did not. But these 50,000 were committed to God and they, 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 you know, they desired to worship him and, and obey his call. And so they go back to Jerusalem to settle back down and immediately begin to rebuild the temple. Uh, They cleared away the ruins. uh, They replaced the altar that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army, and all of this took place in the fall of 536 B.C. By the spring of the next year, 535 B.C., uh, the foundation of the temple was completed. Things were going pretty well, uh, but suddenly the people ran into some opposition. They experienced hostility from various neighboring tribes. Cyrus the Great dies. His successor, a guy named Ahasuerus, really wasn't that crazy about the temple being rebuilt. And so the people being influenced by the surrounding culture and under pressure from those in power abandon God's mission to build his house. Their priorities shift and change. They began to focus on private matters and gradually their spiritual passion fizzled out altogether and for 15 years nothing was done. Uh, the people of God became little more than secular occupants of an impoverished land. And so God raises up this prophet Haggai to arouse the people you know, from their spiritual lethargy and, he, and to call them to again prioritize uh, God and the mission that he had given them. And just so you know, Uh, The name Haggai in the Hebrew literally means festive or festival. Some scholars think that he was probably born during a Jewish festival, Jewish ho- Jewish holiday, so his parents named him accordingly. It'd be the same as if I named my son who was born on December 26th Christmas Kolbacher. Could you imagine that? I mean, I'm mean, i sure he's glad that didn't happen. I think it'd be pretty cool. But, but as, or if you had a child born on April 26th, you named him or her Arbor Day. Okay, so it was that kind of a deal. That was his name. And so this book is the record of of festival or festival or Haggai. And I use the word record because uh, this isn't just some fairy tale. If you notice, the book opens with a, with a historical marker. Verse 1 states, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest. Now, let's face it, that is not the most tantalizing way to start a, a bestseller, you know, or start a book in general, but the information in the opening statement is extremely helpful because it pinpoints exactly when Haggai spoke these words. Historians tell us that Darius became king in Babylon in 521 BC, being that it was the second year of his reign, we know that the year is 520 BC. The sixth month in the Jewish calendar is Elul, the equivalent to our August-September The phrase first day refers to the new moon in the lunar calendar, and so put that all together, our modern-day translation of verse 1 could be on the 29th day of August, 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And although uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, leaders of the people, were specifically named, this message was for everybody, for everybody. And since it was a new moon... Uh, It would have been a holiday in Jerusalem, so a lot of people in and around the city would have crowded to the center of the city. And so Haggai the prophet would have had a ready-made audience to hear not just what he had to say, but really what God had to say. And the message begins with a reprimand. Haggai starts off declaring, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Lord Almighty, by the way, was a title for God, emphasizing his eternality, his divine power, his sovereignty, and so this was no, you know, ordinary introduction to a sermon. Uh, this prophet was declaring that what he was about to say represented the very, the very words of God himself. And here's the divine message. God says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And notice, God doesn't say my people. Rather, he says these people, which, which was an open rebuke, communicating God's displeasure with the Israelites, his his disappointment. And so he repeats what they had been saying for 15 long years, that the time wasn't right to build. I mean, they didn't say we shouldn't build. They, they, they knew that they should. They understood the mission. They knew the purpose God had in bringing them back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple. They were just suggesting that the timing was off. And so God responds to that by asking a question in verse 3. He says, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while my house remains a ruin? Here's my personal Ray K translation. God says, okay, let me, guys, let me try and get this straight here. You don't think now is the time to do what I've asked you to do, but it is the right time for you to design and build and furnish nice homes for yourselves. Is that what you're saying? It's okay to go out and do your own thing and spend your own time and energy and money on your own stuff, splurging on your own homes while my house is, is, is disregarded and in ruins? I mean, can you see why God was disappointed with his people? For the people, what began years earlier as this great spiritual adventure with God ended as nothing more than a self-centered existence. And they removed God from the priority of their lives and, and became very, very selfish and indifferent and negligent to the mission God had called them to. And at this point, they were primarily motivated by personal interests. Uh, they expended uh, an awful lot of energy and resources to build their own homes, their own careers, their own businesses, their own farmlands, orchards, vineyards, and properties, but did nothing for God. In fact, God's reference to paneled houses here speaks directly to the comfort and elegance that the people were working hard to achieve. They, they spent big coin on importing wood from the hill country in the north to line their walls with fancy amenities, And in verse 9, God just comes right out and says it. He says, you know, my house remains in ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. And the Hebrew term that's used here for busy literally means to run around like crazy. And it expresses the frantic zeal by which the people pursued their own interests, their own desires. Dr. Eugene Peterson is a a pretty well-known author, Christian scholar, poet, uh, who Uh, over a decade ago, wrote a a book titled Subversive Spirituality. And in the book, he makes a very simple statement that when I first read it, I remember thinking, I'm not sure that that's true. To be honest, my keep busy activist approach to life and ministry was a little offended by it. But now I'm older and hopefully a little wiser, and I realize that what Dr. Peterson was on to was something significant when he wrote, busyness is the enemy of spirituality. I think he's right. In fact, I would go so far to add that busyness can actually destroy spirituality, especially when that busyness is focused on doing things only for ourselves. And it's that kind of busyness that had muted the spiritual life of the Israelites. The people were, were so busy, frantically running around, running around, doing their own thing. There was no longer any room for God, no time to focus on and apply any energy or resources to the mission God called them to. Now, don't, like, don't misunderstand here um, it wasn't so much that the people were making their homes nice or even spending money on themselves that displeased God. No, that wasn't the issue. The issue was that they were doing it at the expense of God's work. But keep in mind, these were really good people. Okay, These were good people. Verse 12, and throughout the book, they're called the remnant. When Cyrus the Great issued the decree allowing Jewish people to return to Jerusalem, most of those in exile chose to stay in exile in Babylon where they were comfortable and they had settled in and they weren't interested in going back. It was only these 50,000 who made the journey back to Jerusalem, the remnant, composed of Israelites who were serious about faith, distinguished by their unique devotion to God and their desire to obey him. And, you know, they left everything and everyone behind to do it. And yet after a short time, they end up spiritually apathetic. Why? Why? Well, along with their busyness, it seems they practiced what I would call selective obedience. In other words, they were willingly compliant to God in some things, just not all things. And yet God had called them to comprehensive obedience, because that's what it was going to take to build, rebuild his house, obedience in every area of their lives, in their time, their energy, their abilities, their financial resources. And the thing is, the people knew that. I mean, they got it. They, they just weren't willing to do it. And so God calls them on it. In verse 5, he says, give careful thought to your ways. In other words, God says, you guys better stop and think for a moment about what you're doing. Look at your lives, the craziness of them, the busyness of them. Look at your priorities. They're messed up. In verse 6, God says, you've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You make good money. You earn wages only you put them in a purse with holes in it. You you never feel like you have enough, God's saying. Now, I realize, look, I I realize this text is describing a 6th century B.C. ancient Near Eastern culture. But man, oh man, to me it sounds an awful lot like 21st century A.D. America. Doesn't it? I mean, perhaps it's time that, that we, as God puts it, give careful thought to our ways. Because we work hard at our jobs, and we run ourselves ragged building our businesses and our careers and our bank accounts, but we never seem to have enough. We're well-fed and adequately uh, hydrated, <laughs> but always seem to want more to eat and drink. We have nice clothes, and a lot of them but keep buying more and expanding the wardrobe. We earn money, but spend it so fast on ourselves, it's like, it's like our wallets and purses have holes in them. Where does it all go? Many of us have nice homes. And so overall, we're exceptionally comfortable, yet in so many cases, incredibly uh, discontented. I mean, if I'm off on this, you can tell me, but this text seems to describe what sounds remarkably like our culture. It portrays the feverish yet uh, self-absorbed activities that fill our lives and easily end with us ignoring God and, and, and practicing selective obedience with our desires becoming more important than the commands of God, our comfort more important than the cause of God. Listen, the Israelites were... They were so desperately trying to get ahead in life. For years they were trying, yet ultimately they remained frustrated and spiritually unfulfilled. It's a common problem, even today. We have have more money, more houses, more cabins and cars and furniture and food and TVs, laptops, games, vacations, and yet people, even Christians in the church, remain wretchedly unsatisfied and spiritually discontented Why? Because I think like the ancient Israelites were were so busy allowing other things, our things, to take priority over God and the mission he's given us. We become selective and the ways will be obedient. The Israelites knew God's command was to build his temple. They knew the task required obedience in all aspects of life. They simply chose not to be that obedient. You know what I'm saying? They adopted a, a, we'll do this, God, but don't ask us to do that. I mean, that's a little over the top attitude. They even even tried to rationalize their their disobedience. They said, you know, it's it's not time to build the temple. You ever wonder how often God has heard that kind of thing from people? Yes, Lord, I I know you've called me to love people as I am loved by you and and to serve people as you have served me and to forgive others as you have forgiven me Um, I'm just not ready to do that and yeah God I I know you want me to demonstrate grace to those in my life in the same way that you have poured grace out on me but you know the time isn't right and sure, Lord, I get that in Jesus you've made me a member of your family, the church, and you've called me, you've called all of us to share the, the good news of, of, of your love and grace with our community and our region and our world and to teach the truth and to embrace the marginalized and to stand against evil and injustice and support those efforts by helping and giving sac- sacrificially of my own finances. But, you know, you know, the time hasn't not yet come for that. I've got my own things to do, my own vacations to take, stuff to buy, houses to build, walls to panel. Maybe maybe I just need to admit, I mean, maybe we all just need to admit that more often than, than not, when we say, I can't help with the mission of God, in most cases, what we really mean is, I can't help without burdening myself, without cutting into how... I live my life. But understand, God always calls his people to mission. Whether it's 520 B.C., Babylon, 33 A.D., Jerusalem, or 21st century DuPage County. We are called by God to a task. And for us, it's to build his church. It's to be, it's to be the priority of our existence. And in theory, for many of us, in theory I think it is, yet in practicality, well, that's a much different story. But here's the deal. You know, as God's people, if we choose to hold back in any area of our life to God and his mission, we too will eventually slip into a spiritual apathy and suffer feelings of unfulfillment and discontentment. Selective obedience always leads to decline. It always leads to decline. That's why Jesus said to his followers, he said, you know, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus also said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And understand, that's what... That's what the people of Haggai's day were doing. They were forfeiting and they were exchanging. They were forfeiting their their spiritual lives. They were forfeiting their souls and they were exchanging a loving relationship with God and the purpose that he had called them to with a relationship to things and the purpose of getting more and more and more for themselves. And then they made excuses and rationalized their negligence and pushed God from the center to the periphery the periphery of, of their lives, individually and corporately. And so God says in verse 9, he says, you know, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." Now, there are some people who read this and suggest that, well, you know, in response to Israel's selfish attitude and disobedient behavior, God was being mean. He was being punitive and cursed the land, bringing about drought and scarcity. Um, I I don't exactly see it that way. I don't think God was being punitive or mean at all. Actually, the opposite. And then the word curse is never used in the text. So, what was God doing? Why was he doing it? Well, he admittedly, right he admittedly called for the drought that led to the scarcity but i believe in doing so that god with great love and concern for the well-being for their well-being was was trying to recapture the attention of a sinfully preoccupied people and for those who seemed to have everything they needed and more how else was that going to be possible it's like when you're a parent, and if, if you're a parent, you, you, you're going to know what I'm talking about here. You're a parent, you have a child who you've given something to. Let's say you've given them the toy, and suddenly they become really greedy with that toy, and they won't even let you play with it. Let anyone else play with it. They're selfish with this toy, and, and you see their attitude, and you, it's, like it's, it's wounding, and you're like, what's going on here? And So what do you do? I'll tell you what we did in our home. We, we took it away. We took it away to get, it, get their attention, the child's attention. It wasn't about being punitive. It wasn't about being mean. You do that out of love. You do it to help your child. God is the same way. As a loving father, when his children are rebelliously selfish and preoccupied with things that they've been given by him, he will do what's necessary to get their attention out of love. In this case, once he gets it and points out their sin and selfishness, he offers the remedy. Look at verse 7. He says, Hey, give careful thought to your ways. How about this? Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Translation? God says, what I want is very simple. Faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. Make me and the mission I've given you your priority. Because through building my house, God says, the community, the surrounding nations will see that I, the God of Israel, your God, is worthy of worship. Through your obedience, your generosity, your faithfulness, God says, I will be honored. And again, God's command hasn't changed. Today, as his people, our obedience, our generosity, our faithfulness to his command to build the church serves as a witness to the community around us, and to our region, and to the world around us. I mean, that was true of the early church. Uh, their priority was was honoring God and expanding the kingdom. Their passion, absolutely, their their absolute passion was to spread the good news of, of of Jesus and the love and grace and forgiveness of God and the life that He offers. And so, their worship and their their compassion and their their generosity it changed their community. Changed it. Changed their community, changed their culture, Roman culture, and changed the world. In Acts 2, we're told how believers shared all that they had for the good of the of the church and its mission. And the church grew like crazy in numbers and spiritual maturity. The motto of the early Christians was, give what we have to the mission. And for today, the adopted motto for many is, give what we have left. And God becomes more like the family dog who, who gets the small scraps of food that are left on the table after we take and consume all that we want. So give, give careful thought to your ways. Where does God stand in your life? And in my life, where does he stand? At the center or the periphery? Are you engaged in the mission of building the church expanding the kingdom, bringing this good news of love and grace to our world, applying your time, your gifts, your energy, your resources to it, or neglecting the mission with excuses and rationalizations. Listen, we will never find true joy in spiritual fulfillment until we commit all areas of our lives to God and to his call and apply ourselves and resources to eternal matters whether individually or corporately, disobedience will lead only to spiritual decline. It always does. So what did the Israelites do with all of this? Well, let's look at their reaction. Verse 12 records it. We're told, Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shultiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, i.e. September 21st, 520 B.C. Look, it, it was very possible that the Israelites could have ignored God, God's message, stoned the prophet, and, and just kept on making excuses for their behavior. But they didn't do that. Instead, the people responded in a very positive and, and humble and impassioned way. Verse 12 says what? They obeyed the voice of the Lord. In other words, the, the straightforward message of God spoken through the prophet caused an effective change in their attitudes and their actions. And once again, they started building the temple, and we're told that they, they what? They feared the Lord. You know, what does that mean? It means that they regained a sense of awe and reverence for God, for who He is as Creator and what He called them to do. And the result was that the leaders and the people experienced spiritual renewal they kind of shook off their apathy, you know, and passionately, sacrificially re-engaged with God and the given mission. And four years later, by the way, the temple gets dedicated. And so what the people were beginning to learn was that God honors those who stop making excuses. And I don't know about you, but for me, you know, the, the, the thing that I found particularly moving, particularly encouraging in these last few verses are the four simple words spoken by God here. In verse 13, God says, I am with you. I am with you. When the people humbly return their attention to God and to the mission, he assures them of his presence and good favor. And by the way, do those words sound at all familiar to you? I mean, isn't isn't it the very same thing Jesus said to his followers when sending them out on mission? Remember, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has has been given to me. Therefore, here's the mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. In the New Testament, God says to his people, build my church. I'm with you. And in the Old Testament, God says to his people, build my house, I am with you. But notice, not only does God say I am with you, but in verse 14, we're told that as the people by faith set out to obey him, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders and of the whole remnant of the people. What does that mean, stirred up? It means wake up. It means to revive, to bring back to life. Here's my Reiki summary. When his people stop rationalizing their disobedience and making excuses and instead give priority to God and his mission, they experience not cursing, but blessing. Not emptiness, but fullness. Not spiritual apathy, but spiritual passion. Now, uh, this is just one, uh, this is really just the first of four messages uh, that God sends through Haggai this prophet. But for me, for me it's a particularly relevant one in terms of the church today in America. Because let's face it, living, living in a culture where we, we, we pretty much have all that we need and more, it is so easy for us to get greedy, and entitled, and self-centered, and preoccupied with everything and everyone except God, who's given to us all that we have in the first place. And I fear that the church in America has has desperately lost its direction, and its sense of purpose. And just like in the days of Haggai, God is calling, calling us to give careful thought to our ways, because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses locally regionally globally you are to build my church that's the mission and to fulfill it requires it requires uh, humble reverence, and faithful obedience and intentional sacrifice the question that I have is this how will God's people respond today how will you respond how will I respond Will we rationalize our disobedience, our self-absorption? Will we uh, just make excuses for our negligence? Or will we together refocus and use our time and our energy and our gifts and our resources to accomplish the mission that we've been given? I mean, it's a big, you know... It's a big task, absolutely it is. But the world needs to know, and I'm confident that the world wants to know who God is and what this Jesus has graciously done for them. And I believe that if we, we set ourselves to the task, individually and corporately, God will be honored and we will achieve great things for His kingdom. Because when our hearts and our minds are focused on Him, and His mission. His promise to us is this. I am with you. I am with you. (laughs) And really, you know, what more could we possibly want? So, um, I don't want to ruin the end of the story because we have some more to study in Haggai, but uh, here's what the people are going to ultimately learn that um, God wasn't so concerned with the bricks and mortar of the temple as he was with the love and faithfulness of his people. an interesting week for me and um, so often in life we get all wrapped up in all kinds of stuff and in terms of eternity makes no difference and and that's the message God wants us to understand and then we have a world that wants to know who God is and they they hear about this Jesus they don't really know much about him and they need to know about him and that's the mission we've been given and so we can either make excuses and rationalize why we're not doing it, or we can we can jump in and we can we can make a difference. You know? Because it's not about bricks and mortar; it's just about God wanting us to love Him and to be obedient. And when we do that, the world changes. See. So I, I hope that you understand that this Christian thing—you know—we don't do this because we're earning God's favor; it's because God has already loved us graciously. And it's that grace that changes us from the inside out, you see. And I hope you get that, and if not, you know, we can talk to you more about it. And in fact, following the service, we're going to have some of our, our prayer team people down here in the front. You can come and talk, whatever it is. Maybe you're just having some things in life that's really rough, and you just need someone to talk to and pray with. They're down here for you, but uh, I hope you come back as we continue through this this series, because God's people have they have a lot to learn, and you know, I know I'm a little thick headed so I have a lot to learn as well I hope you find it helpful uh, I think you will so thanks for being here let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed Lord I pray this morning that we would go understanding what is most important to you um, it's not buildings it's not programs it's, it's people you want us You want us to love you and worship you and be obedient to your call in our lives to make a difference in this world. And if we do, if we quit the excuses and the rationalizations and we we pour ourselves out for you, you'll do great things. Even as you did with the Israelites, for through the people of Israel came the Messiah, Jesus, who changed the world give us the strength to be those kind of people. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget to pick up your um, part of your, uh, report on your way out. And we'll see you next Sunday.